Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I didn't hear everybody say thank you. Happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. This morning I stayed home with Steph to help her get the kids together so we could get here for the breakfast. And she had been telling me the kids are really tough on Sunday mornings. I take them in the morning to school, but they're too tired to really cause any havoc. By the time I got the kids upstairs for breakfast, Kellen was completely covered in marker, and I think Claire had spilled something, several things on her dress by then. Juliet had left a little present on her dress too. I don't know how you do it alone when I'm not around. I am sorry. I'm going to try and be there more often. It is tough being a mom. That is a full-time job, let me tell you. Men, we talk about, oh, it's so hard at work. It is harder at home when you have three babies under five. Someone equated lack of sleep. I think they said getting five to six hours a night is like being, like having five to six glasses of alcohol. So I've been drunk for the last five years, if that's true. Well, Steph, 10 years, huh? Some people said we wouldn't make it past one. <laughs> we did 10, didn't we? Praise God. Well, you know what? That's also been by God's grace. Stephanie said to me, I have never once, she said to me this, uh, this past Friday, she said, I have never once thought about divorce. Murder, yes, but divorce, no. Well, happy anniversary and happy Mother's Day. Also, thank you to the men, uh, men's ministry who put on a wonderful breakfast this morning. Those grits were really good. Where's Sam? You're going to have to teach me how to make those grits. I thought that was a southern dish. The Caribbean, does the Caribbean eat grits too? A little bit, no? I thought Southerners were the only ones who liked wet sand. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turning them to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. That's going to be our passage this morning. We're going to read a little bit further beyond that, but our main focus this morning is going to be Romans 3, 21 through 26. We're continuing our study of the five solas of the Reformation. Last week we learned that God made us alive while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Many people have come up to me since last week's sermon and said, but God. They really like that part. Well, it's an important part. We learned that God's grace in our salvation speaks to His work of how he accomplishes salvation for us. The reason why I begin with grace before sola fide is because without God's grace in making us alive, we would never have faith in him. Some people debate what comes first. Does, our, does God's grace come before our faith or do we have faith and then we're made alive? Well, you tell me, do dead people do anything? If dead people don't do anything, then obviously faith is what happens after God makes us alive by his grace. 
We learn that God's grace is unconditional. He simply loves us because he loves us, not because of anything he foresaw in any of us. He didn't look into the future and see that we might have faith in him or that we would be good people and then say, I'll choose you for salvation. No, the Bible says that while we were dead, as we learned last week in Ephesians 2, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself, not by works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift of God. But while God's election and his grace in salvation is unconditional, it does not mean that our justification or the way that we receive that salvation does not have conditions. Our justification is conditional. The condition is based upon faith alone apart from works. So I want to make this very clear at the beginning so that we don't get confused. God has chosen us from before the foundation of the earth according to his grace alone and not because of anything foreseen in the creatures. But those whom he has chosen still have a condition that they have to meet. And that is faith. Now some will say, well, how can God's grace be unconditional Yet our salvation be based upon our faith. What if one of the persons who God made alive does not exercise faith in Christ? Someone will ask. What if God makes us alive and we just say, thanks for making us alive, but I don't want to believe in you. Scripture doesn't know any category like that. For all those who God has made alive will believe on his name. It is a guarantee. The condition of our justification is faith alone apart from works. And all those who God has made alive will meet that condition. Let me give you some verses. In Acts 13, 48, Luke says, And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they began rejoicing... And glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now he could have said, as many believed, then God appointed to eternal life, right? He could have easily said that. But what Luke says is that as many as were appointed to eternal life met the necessary condition for their salvation, they did what? They believed. Romans 8, 29, 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Uh, Arminians love this verse because they love to say, Well, God foreknew that we would choose him, therefore he predestined us. But notice that the text doesn't say that. The text does not say that those whom God foreknew would believe in him. No, it tells us in Acts 13, 48, those who God, who, who God appointed before the foundation of the world... Believed, and here it tells us that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that the one doing the work is God. Throughout the process. He did, he did, he did, he did. So this morning, I want to talk about what God requires for salvation, namely faith alone. But I hope we understand this at the outset. That all of you who have received Jesus Christ by faith alone have done so because God made you alive when you were dead. Let's make God big. Let's make us small. You were dead. God made you alive. You exercise faith. Okay. So let's talk this morning about sola fide. Sola fide is the Latin which means faith alone. And it's the doctrine that the only way to be justified and receive God's grace is through faith, that is by accepting Christ's merits on one's own behalf. We're going to talk a little bit later in the sermon what that faith is. It's not just faith without definition, it is a definite certain type of faith. Today's world is a world of polarity. Good guys and the bad guys. Today we're viewing everything through the lens of we want to be on the right side of history and not the wrong side of history. It's about liberals and conservatives. It's about pro-Trump or anti-Trump. It's about baby lovers versus baby killers. It's about those who believe in traditional gender versus those who believe that gender is a social construct. It's about gay versus straight. Today's world is about Jews versus Muslims and Russians versus Americans and Eastern civilization versus Western civilization, black versus white, and on and on we go the polarity of good and evil. And the reason why we do that, human beings love polarity because they want to be able to point to someone else as bad so they can point back to themselves as good. We love polarity. We love to say you're bad, and the reason why we love to say you're bad or they do it wrong is so that we can say we're doing it right and we're good. We want to justify ourselves by the way we live our life and in what we believe. That's why we do it. And look at what's happening in our political spectrum today. It's as if we don't have an opportunity or we don't have an option to go into those booths and vote one way or the other. If you vote that way, now you're a bad guy. If you vote this way, now you're a good guy. That's how the world is defined today. I was even watching the show Cops the other night. Yes, that show's still on, by the way. Don't you love that show? Huh, bad boys! What you want? I sing the whole song. I learned it, and I annoy Stephanie with it every time I sing it. Because I try to do my Jamaican accent. It's really a Jafakin accent. Nobody not giving no break. All right. (laughs) 
You didn't know they said that. A to Z lyrics, I learned it there. I was watching cops, and this woman comes up. She, she comes up to a cop car. Cop says, I just got a call that a woman's been robbed. She walks up to the cop, and she says, they stole 20 bucks from me. And he says, who stole 20 bucks from you? The people right up there, they stole 20 bucks from me. He says, how'd this happen? You got to tell me. She's really mad. She says, well, I was trying to buy crack cocaine, and they stole 20 bucks from me. <laughs> and the police officer, true story, police officer, I mean, out of the mouth of a crackhead, right? So I shouldn't have said that. Um, so the police officer says, you called me here to get back your 20 bucks that you gave to a crack dealer to buy crack cocaine. You feel like you deserve that. She was the good guy. She doesn't even, it doesn't even enter her mind that she could possibly be the bad guy or bad girl. Let's be politically correct. The bad girl. She's buying crack cocaine, but she's so, she's so much emphasizing the polarity of everybody else bad me good, that she doesn't even see that she is guilty of an even greater crime. This is what happens when you get people who are evil dealing with other people who are evil for evil reasons. And we like the world to be polarized because we like to be divided between good guys and bad guys. I hear people talking today about America so divided as if America's the only country that's ever had a civil war. They talk about division as if it's new. If you read the history of America, you read the history of any nation, there's always a division. There's always that guy in that group that thinks he knows how to run the church or run the country better than the other guy does. It happens everywhere. This is common. It's been going on for centuries in this country. Slave owners versus abolitionists. Puritans versus purists. Federalists versus anti-federalists. North versus South. And this has been going on across the world ever since Adam and Eve in the beginning began to blame each other for the sin. Eve, Eve says that the serpent did it. And Adam says to God, the woman you gave me did it. He's really blaming God there, not really Eve. It's really God, the woman you gave me. Because we want to have good versus bad, and we want to be good, and we want everybody to be bad. But the Bible says this. You're all bad guys. The best of you are bad guys. The best of us. The very best of us are bad guys. The Mother Teresa's. The Gandhi's. The Martin Luther King Jr.'s. The Andrew Summerses were all bad guys. We're all sinners. And the word bad there, the way I'm using bad, means sinful. 
Because really that's the only category that's going to matter when you stand before God, whether or not you met his righteous standard or not. And so I want to erase this from your mind this morning. Don't ever say this again. I am a good person. Don't say that at least, don't say that at least as it refers to how you're going to be justified before God. You, you might be a nice person. You might pay your taxes. You might keep your, your car in the speed limit. You might be a very nice person, but insofar as what justifies us before God, no, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The very best of us, the pastors, the popes. Paul says, none is righteous, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And Paul says this about his own people to an audience of people mixed with his people and with Gentiles. That would be like a, a Republican standing up at the RNC and saying something like, you know, guys, we're guilty of the very same things the Democrats are guilty of. You'd never hear that. That would be like a, a, a speaker at an LGBT convention getting up and saying, you know, guys, we're just as hate-filled as we say everyone else is. You'd never hear that. Because in the polarity of this world, we're trying to prove that we're good, they're bad. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And Scripture says, before me, before God, before holy God, you're all bad. If I was preaching this at an LGBT conference, I might pick on the LGBT. But since I'm preaching this to Christians, it's very easy for us to look at everyone living their life the wrong way and say they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And we forget that the narrative is that we're all bad. And then it leads to all kinds of abuse, spiritual abuse, verbal abuse. It leads to people saying, I can't go to that church because it's full of hypocrites. Maybe it is. It might actually be full of hypocrites. Because we believe we're the right guys. We're the good guys. This morning I want to talk about why the doctrine of sola fide means none of us are good enough to be called good guys. And that no one will be saved apart from having faith alone in Christ Jesus. No one. The people who never miss church, the people who always bring their Bible, always wear a suit and tie, they too are in need of salvation by grace alone. The men and women who've been faithful in their marriage, who've never been unfaithful, who don't have homosexual desires, who do not feel a tendency to change their gender, who have no mental or physical health problems, need justification by faith alone just like everyone else. So we're going to follow the same pattern that we did last week. We're going to read the passage one time through, and then I want us to get a sense of that flow of the passage, and then I want to try and just unpack that for you. The main thought is this. The doctrine of sola fide answers this important question. How can sinful human beings be made right with a holy God? That's the question we're going to answer today. Be made right. Let me see if I can give you a modern-day illustration. Imagine that credit card, I'm sure none of you have credit cards, but imagine that 
it's this little plastic thing and you can go and you can give it to people and they'll give you material and then you can get it today and you just pay for it over several months and you have to pay interest. That's called a credit card. I'm sure none of you have one of those, right? Imagine that from the thousands of dollars you've amassed in debt from having things today, the credit card agency called you today and said, someone has paid your debt. It's not exactly like that, but I want to get it down to a, a way we can all understand that's what's going on here, a wiping away of a great debt. So when we use words like justify and righteous and made right with God, we have a huge, unpayable debt. You cannot pay this off with just 36 payments of 1995. You can't. It is an unpayable debt, and someone else has paid it. Okay. The question assumes, though, several things. It assumes that all human beings are sinful. We're going to look at that. Number two, that we are in need of justification, that we need our debt paid. And number three, that no relationship with God is possible apart from being cleansed of our sins. The Reformers believed this about the doctrine of sola fide. Martin Luther said, this doctrine... This article with and by which is the article with and by which the church stands, and without it, it falls. The doctrine of sola fide is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. John Calvin Another reformer said this, justification by faith, that is sola fide, is reconciliation with God. And this consists solely in the remission of sins. For if those whom the Lord hath reconciled to himself are estimated by works, they will still prove to be in reality sinners, while they ought to be pure and free from sin. It is evident, therefore, that the only way in which those whom God embraces are made righteous is by having their pollutions wiped away by the remissions of their sins so that this justification may be termed, in one word, the remission of sins. Faith alone wipes away our sins. The London Baptist Confession of Faith which is almost word for word with the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the three major creeds of the Reformation, says this. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them. This isn't a substance but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith in self, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law. Him and his righteousness is by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, 
but is the gift of God. Faith is thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness. It alone is the instrument of justification. Yet this faith is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but a faith that works by love. All right, so before we read our passage this morning, I want us to keep in mind that the words justify and righteous, they come from the same Greek word group, the DK group, which means something like being in right standing before God. So when you see those words righteous and justify, they're in the same word group. Let's look at our passage. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I want to break this down and explain what we have here. If we look at the beginning of our passage, the passage begins the way verse 4 in Ephesians 2 began last week. Instead of, it doesn't begin with but God, this week it begins but now. The Greek doesn't really contain the disjunction but, but the word is implied. So far in the first three and a half chapters of Romans, Paul has argued that the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, are under the wrath of God. The whole world is guilty in the eyes of the Lord because they are under sin. But, as we learned last week, introduces us to a contrasting point. In this case, Paul had been talking about how everyone was guilty of law-breaking and therefore under the wrath of God. But in the verse, it immediately comes before verse 21. Paul says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And if, it left, if Paul left it there and didn't continue on, the gospel would be a very, very bad thing. There would, what would the gospel be? If the news was simply that God demands perfect righteousness and you haven't kept it, we'd be in bad shape. But look at how verse 21 begins. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested. That word manifest means made known to everyone. Everyone now knows it. It's been made manifest. So a Jew thought that the righteousness of God, if, if we had the law, we had the righteousness of God. 
The Gentile thought, if I'm a good person, if I obey the law in my heart, I'm a good person. Jew thought if I obey the law on the tablets, I'm justified by God. God is faithful always. And if I obey his law, I'm, I'm with him. And Paul says, no, none of you keep it. The Gentile doesn't keep the law in his heart. The Jew doesn't keep the law on the tablet. But now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets... Bear witness to it. Every time you see that phrase, the law and the prophets, I want you to know that that is a reference to the Bible that Paul has at that day. Obviously, Paul doesn't have Romans when he's writing Romans. So when Paul uses the phrase law and the prophets, he's referring back to the Old Testament. And so Paul says, the righteousness of God has now been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does he mean by that? If the, if the righteousness of God is now manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, well, I thought that this was a new law, a different law, and that God now justifies people by faith, but in the Old Testament, he justified the Jews by keeping the law. And so if they kept the law, they were justified perfectly. No. No. In the verses that precede us, Paul takes eight verses, roughly seven to eight verses, depending on how you group one of them. That is a reference. It's a double reference in two different parts. He takes eight references from the Old Testament to prove that no one keeps the law. So the Jews who thought they were going to keep it perfectly, Paul says, no, we already know. Scripture has already told us Old Testament's not contradicting New Testament. Scripture has always said this, none of us keep the law of God. So look up at, at verses 10 through 18 in the same chapter, chapter 3. As it is written. Paul's saying it's already in our Bibles, guys. It's already there. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their, lisp, or their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 130, through, uh, Psalm 130 verse 3, the psalmist says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Paul says the law and the prophets bear witness that the righteousness of God is going to have to be made manifest, manifest apart from the law because none of us keep it. And this isn't to mention the countless narratives of God's people in the Old Testament who enter into a cycle of sin that begins with disobedience, judgment, trust in God through the repentance of sin, and finally God's delivering the people by His grace. There's not a single hero of the Old Testament who kept the law perfectly. I hate when I hear these, these stories of go and be like David. 
Don't be like David. Go and be like Abraham. Don't you be like Abraham. Look at what Abraham did. All of them are justified by their faith, not their works. You go and be like Christ. He was the perfect hero. So Paul says, listen, the law and the prophets, they bear witness to this. It's already there. It's already in our Bibles. Guys, we should already know this. But Jews, who just like you and I, Gentiles, love the polarity, we're good. Paul says to them, if you're sure that you yourself, says this, the Jews are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, the Jews thought, hey, I've got the righteousness of God in the law. We're saved. We're good. We've got the Bible. We're good. And Paul says, no, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say the one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul says, listen, the word, the Bible, the law that God gave to you, the Jews, is of value if you keep it perfectly, but you don't keep it perfectly. And the law and the prophets have already bore witness to this. No one is righteous in God's sight. But the law and the prophets also testifies not only to our sinfulness, but the law and the prophets also testifies to the fact that faith in God's promises, not the keeping of the law, is what justifies a person before God. So wipe away the idea today that the Jews were justified by keeping the law of God. They were not. They were justified by faith. So we have our passage here in 321 through 26, and it's like a piece of meat in between two pieces of bread. Here, the Old Testament testifies that the whole world is sinful. Over here in, in chapter 4, it testifies to us that justification comes before the law is given by faith. Chapter 4, verse 2 through 8. Listen to what Paul says. Same book. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness. Then he quotes David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul says not only does the Old Testament already teach that we're all sinful, but that justification has always been by faith. It has always been by faith. God's people have always walked with him by faith. Which comes first, Abraham or Moses? Abraham. How could God call Abraham justified if there was no law 
for Abraham to keep perfectly. And furthermore, we know the narrative. Was Abraham a perfect man? No. You might even say that his faith wasn't even a perfect faith since he did not believe that God could produce through Sarah the offspring God promised. And he went to Hagar. The justification is not by his perfect keeping or perfect faith. And there are some today who would like to tell you that all of your problems will go away if you just have perfect faith. No. Absolutely not. No one has it. So the whole world, Jews included, has always fallen short of the glory of God. And in this context, the phrase glory of God means the perfect righteousness that God requires. The idea is that human beings are made to glorify God in their obedience to His commands, and they didn't keep His commands, therefore they haven't glorified God. In fact, Paul begins 117 by saying, or at least chapter 118 by saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So that the great sin of mankind, mankind is not that they did drugs or they got drunk or they had sex before marriage. The great sin of mankind is their ungodliness that they did not glorify God and honor and praise Him who is forever praised but have worshipped the created thing rather than the Creator. They didn't have faith. The wrath of God is revealed against those who have rejected God. It is demonstrated in a life of sin. Believers, when you hear people out there call, ha, ha, committing sin and you run to them and you say, stop committing this sin, their problem is not the sin. Their problem is that their sin resembles or demonstrates that they have rejected God. That's what they'll be judged for. In fact, all of the sins that are mentioned in Romans 1, all of those, there's an entire list of sins that are mentioned are all based upon God giving men and women over to their idolatry. They forsook God, they didn't believe in God, and therefore God gave them over, and this is what you got. A world full of chaos. When you see sin increasing in our society, don't say the world's going to hell in the handbasket. It's always been doing that. Look and say, how much will people reject God? The best example of this is that God made man, male and female, in His image. It's not about gender confusion today. Men and women are not confused about gender. They are positive that they are rejecting God. And they are saying in their gender confusion, no, I realize God made man and woman and man has only ever met man. And woman has only ever met woman. Physiologically. What they're rejecting it's the God in whose image they have been made. 
and the society that's, that does it, as Paul says in this very passage, they not only do it, but they applaud or they say good job to those who practice such things. What does that all stem from? No faith in God. So the whole world is under God's wrath. The whole world is guilty of this idolatry. They have worshipped false gods. Someone will say, well, not everybody worships idols. But idols are not only graven images. Idols can be ideas. Ideas like selfishness. Like me, I'm going to worship God when God fits into my life. I'm going to worship God when, when I can... When, when I can be there on Sunday, but i got to do this job right now. i got to chase after this career right now. Idol. Who's the idol? Yourself. The heart is always running after something. And it's either going to run after yourself, or an idea, or money, or success, or sex, or drugs, or your spouse or your career, or it's going to run after God. I spoke with someone this week who said, I'm at the end of my rope here. There was a woman in my life who I loved, and she's, make, she's left me, and I'm at the end of myself. And I said to this brother, brother, did you receive Christ as your Savior? He said, yes, and he gave me the date. And I said to this brother, good. God is killing every idol in your life so that the only thing you have left is to worship the one and true God by faith. Would that God would kill every idol in our lives so that we might run after him and not run after things that can never give us what only God can give us. The only thing that, that the worship of a person is going to end up with is disappointment. I make every married couple, every couple that I marry, I make them read this book called When Sinners Say I Do so that the husband and the wife understand that person you're marrying cannot fulfill you. She can't be your Christ. He can't be your Christ. That job, what happens when we hear when, when, the, when, the, when the market crashed in 2008? People were jumping out of buildings. They had everything. They had money. They had wealth. They had power. But when their God died, they lost meaning in life. Their whole meaning and existence of existence was dead. Because their gods were not the God who is eternal and who is forever to be praised. And who will never die and who will never disappoint you. They had put their faith in things and not God. Listen to me this morning. If you're putting your faith in anything except God, the only thing that's going to happen is that thing or that person or that place is going to disappoint you. And if you are one of God's children, God will discipline you by killing that God right in front of your very eyes. Oh, what a loving father that he would kill those gods in our life. Make you lose that job. Make you get 
kicked out of school. Make your body that you, you think just a couple more blueberries, if you eat a couple more blueberries, you'll never get cancer. Give you cancer so that you put your faith in him. Faith alone. Nothing else. Rob us of all of our gods. Kill all of our gods that we might put our faith in the one and true God who is forever praised. Oh, it's a wonderful thing for God to sit on his throne. Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteousness that was revealed has been made manifest now. It's now known specifically in a specific person that all will be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. There are four important propositions in verse 22. Of, through, in, and for. What is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God it's not of anyone else. This is God being righteous. This is God by his goodness and by his grace giving to us salvation. How? Through faith. In Jesus. For all who believe. This faith that God gives us is not simply faith. It's not just a belief in something. It is through faith and not through works that we will have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is both God acting and what we must have. If we are going to be righteous through God, we will not come to him on that day and say, look at all the good things I did, God. You see, I gave to wounded warriors. Even when I found out they were using that money for other reasons, I gave to wounded warriors, God. See, God, I always gave my time. No, the righteousness of God is not through your works, it's through your faith. One of the questions we ask anybody who's going to be a member of our church is if you were standing before God today, what would you tell him? If he asks you why I should let you in, what would you tell him? If he asks you, if he asks you what does it mean to be saved, what would you tell him? And sometimes we get people who say, well, I've never done a bad... I'm, I really haven't done anything bad. I really get that. I really get that. And you're really living with people in your life who really believe that. I want to hear this. Christ is my only reason. No other reason. God, the only thing I contribute to my salvation is my sins. That's it. I have nothing. Like the tax collector who prayed to God, be merciful upon me as a sinner. And the Pharisee looked over and said, thank God I'm not like him. I'm a good guy. Because the Pharisee loved polarity. I'm a good guy. He's tax collector, bad guy. I'm Pharisee, good guy. Thank you, God, I'm not like the bad guys. No, the... Of the two, the tax collector went home justified. God, faith, that's it. Be merciful on me. 
I'm going I'm to lay, lay everything on this, that you'll be merciful to me. I'm going to put my faith in you, God, and not in who I am. It's just you. Salvation has come to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Verses 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That means God has bought back. That is in Christ Jesus. In Christ, whom God has put forward as a propitiation. The word propitiate means to wipe away our sins and put us in a favorable position with God. By his blood to be received by faith. People ask, why can't God just forgive us without all this faith and grace and the death of his son? Because God is a holy, just God. And salvation has to be earned by a perfect person and by a perfect sacrifice. So that in verse 26, Scripture can tell us, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Therefore, the whole world has failed to keep the law. They're guilty of all of it at every point and must be justified by one who has kept the law perfectly and who pays the penalty, namely, Christ Jesus our Lord. What does this doctrine mean for us? Sola fide means four things. Sola fide means that we will never have a relationship with God until we trust in Him solely by faith. You will never know God apart from faith. No one knows God truly apart from faith. No one knows God salvifically apart from faith. If you are rejecting God today, you don't know Him. You know Him by faith. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in in His sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Those who are not justified are unrighteous in God's eyes and therefore are under His wrath. Therefore, they cannot know Him. Sola fide means that we will never have a relationship with God until we trust in Him solely by faith. Sola fide also means that faith in Christ is not equivalent to mere intellectual belief in God. I hope every Baptist in here hears what I'm saying this morning. Mere intellectual belief in God is not sola fide. That is not faith. The Reformers were so concerned about this that one of the people who followed Luther, Philip Melanchthon, came along and developed three types of faith. He said, look, this is what it really is. There is salvation that by, there is faith in what we know, notitia. There's faith in what we agree with, a census, and faith in what we trust in. Notitia is what we know. We know the proposition 
Salvation comes by faith in Christ the Lord. We know it. That's not faith. James said the demons know that much. If that's as shallow as your faith is this morning, you have the faith of demons. James. If all you have is you have a, I believe it. That's the faith of demons. I know it. What about if I agree with it? And I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And yeah, when I get time, I'm going to start trusting him. And I believe it. Yeah, I like it. But right now, man, life is just all over the place. That is not sola fide. Jesus gave a parable about these types of people. They receive it. They're happy. They immediately spring up. And then when persecution sets in, they're dead. Or, which I think is more likely with us today, they have the faith, they receive it, they begin to grow up and they grow up in the thorns. And when life becomes their concern, they run after riches and money rather than God. So they know it, they agree with it, but they just don't have time for God right now. They're not going to trust on him. They're not going to act. The last one is fiducia. And that is a faith that acts. A faith where we trust on him, where we demonstrate that we believe in God because our life demonstrates that. I don't understand, God, why you say in your word, pray for my enemies, but I'm going to do it. I don't understand, God, why you say forgive those who persecute you, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies. I don't understand why you say that, but okay. And I don't even like it really, but I'm going to do it. That's sola fide. Everyone in South Florida has faith. I hear it all the time. But this is not a Christian city. No, faith resembles Christ. Sola fide means Christ is Lord. I follow Christ. Someone asked me this week, what does the word disciple mean? I said it means being like Christ. Period. Take up your cross. Follow me. Servant is no greater than the master. That's sola fide. Number three, faith alone, sola fide, does not mean simply believing in anyone or anything. People today use the word faith as a way of describing how they get through tough or difficult situations. When a person is anxious or when they're worried or when they're struggling with a life situation, someone will say, you have to have faith. Or you have to believe in yourself. Ooh, idolatry. The idea is that a person is to trust in some sort of amorphous spiritual force that will bring into alignment all of the things necessary to bring about positive circumstances in your life. If you just have faith. There was a trailer for Oprah Winfrey's seven-part series, Believe, and she expressed faith this way. Faith is my confidence 
My confidence comes from knowing there is a force, a power greater than myself that I am part of and that is also a part of me. How far away is that from the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe? It says nothing about forces. It says nothing about cosmic powers. One person describes faith in it as the simple belief that things can change. And I don't want to pick on Oprah this morning or on people like her who hope in faith. I just want to point out that that hope in faith and in faith apart from Christ is nothing. You can have faith and you can get down every night and pray to the potted plant or to the statue in front of you. And you can light candles to it. And you can cut your wrists like the 400 prophets of Baal. And you can bleed. And you can dance around it. And you can yell at it. But at the end of the day, the only thing it is is a piece of metal. Potted plants don't answer prayer. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe in him. Faith alone is not just faith. Christian faith is, is not this fuzzy thing, says Josh McDowell. It's focused on the real truth of what Jesus did for you. Faith in anything else, no matter how hard you may believe in it, cannot save you. Finally, sola fide or faith alone does not mean that faith is alone. James said in chapter 2 of his letter in verses 14 and 16, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Not faith, but can that faith save him? What type of faith? The type of faith that says, I have faith and I don't have to live a good life. I don't have to be a part of a church. I don't have to love God. I don't have to be faithful to my spouse because I've got faith. James says, can that faith save you? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is D-E-A-D, dead. Sola fide does not mean apart from, that, that there are no works in your life. It means that your salvation is by faith, but a faith that works. Some people have tried to argue that Paul and James are contradicting one another. Paul is the faith guy, James is the works guy. There's no contradiction here. James and Paul are talking about how one is justified in a different sense. Before God, we are justified by our faith alone. But before man, we demonstrate our faith by our works. What did Christ say about that last good soil that the seed of the gospel was sown on? He said what? It grew up and it yielded fruit. 
some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. If any man has this faith in Christ, if they are in Christ Jesus, they are new creatures. The old life has passed away. The new has come. Paul and James aren't contradicting one another. In fact, if you look down at verse 31 of the very same passage, listen to what Paul says. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Answer, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Faith enables us to obey God. The last verse in our section last week said this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ this, this morning in faith, and there is no evidence of a changed life, that is a good indication that that faith you have is dead. I cannot be any more loving with you this morning than to tell you that. The most loving thing I can tell you this morning is if there is not fruit in your life that you are saved. What does that fruit look like? I'll be honest with you. Can I just be honest with you for just a moment? If you're not a part of a local church body, that is a very, very good indication that you are not a part of God's family. A very good indication. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves, even as you see that day coming. How can you be together and stir up love and good works and manifest the gifts of the Spirit for one another and serve the body and demonstrate that you are in salvation by observing the Lord's Supper through prayer if you're not a part of a local body? If you're living in sin today, if we have come to you maybe personally one-on-one -on -one, or you know you've read through Scripture and you see that the Word of God says do A and you say I'm going to do B, and I'm not going to believe that part. That is a good indication that you have not received Christ by faith alone. Because faith alone is not a faith that is alone. Our justification equals faith plus our works. It is not faith plus works and then God will save us. No, it's God has saved you. Now your life will demonstrate faith and works. And I'm just telling you this. If you don't have faith and works, the chances are you're not saved. But I want to leave you with some good news. This morning, you can begin to walk by faith. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to make something very clear this morning. I'm not impressed with one-time commitments. 
I'm not impressed with one-time commitments. I've seen them my whole life. I've seen people come down this aisle, and I've seen them go. Never to return to Jesus' people. Here's what I want to give you an opportunity to do this morning. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to decide to follow Jesus for the rest of your life and to obey Him no matter what His Word tells you. Even if you don't agree with it, trust it and know that it's good for you. Commit your heart to this belief this morning that if I believe in Christ as my only salvation, I will be saved. Father, here's my prayer this morning to this church and for this church. God, I can do an altar call and hundreds of people can come, but that means nothing if you don't regenerate hearts. We learn that you make dead people alive and many of us have dead faith. Make the faith alive today. If there was a person when they were young and came forward or many years ago came forward to make a profession of faith and to be baptized, let every person remember that that baptism is only as good as the lives that they're living in faith day by day. God, you have to change the hearts. Lord, we won't know where this church is if a hundred people come forward. We won't know where this church is. It means nothing. It impresses us today. But where will we be in 10 and 20 years? Lord, regenerate our faith today so that we might all take up our cross and follow you. Let us see with our eyes, hear with our ears, that we are a church that has trusted in Christ alone, by faith alone, to the praise of your glorious grace alone. Amen. Would you stand with us?